Well, please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 4. You know, everybody knows that childhood game, Follow the Leader, right? We've all played it. It's a really simple game. The leader leads and the followers follow. Well, today we are talking about the extreme privilege of following Jesus. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. It's a very straightforward passage of Scripture, by the way. It's simple. It's to the point. These verses are often used to try and get people to do what God has called them to do in terms of sharing their faith in Christ, being fishers of men. But the main idea is really clear, and as you hear this, you'll, you'll see it. It's all about following Jesus. And being used by God is part of the picture, but it all flows out of the following. So Matthew chapter 4 and verse 18. Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that as we come to your word, we know it is your word. It is God's word. It is not man's word, but it is yours and it is from you. And we know, Lord, that it is powerful and that you want to speak to our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to uh, quickly follow you and to obey you in in all ways. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, so far in the Gospel of Matthew, we have seen many foundational things. We have seen Jesus' birth and his background, his reception by his parents, his worship by the wise men, Herod trying to kill him, John the Baptist being highlighted as the forerunner of the Messiah. John came preaching that men should repent and turn to God. And when John was baptizing, Jesus also came to be baptized. The sinless Son of God identifying with fallen humanity, with sinful humanity whom he'd come to save. And then after that, Jesus was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he prevailed with the word of God and the power of the spirit of God. And then Jesus began his earthly ministry. He began to preach and he began to preach the same thing that John the Baptist had preached. Repent. Radically turn from your sins. Allow God to rule in your life. Repentance is a constant theme in Jesus' public preaching. And Matthew is very soon going to give us an extensive account of Jesus' preaching in the Sermon on the Mount which we'll start looking at in January. But first he tells us of Jesus calling four fishermen to follow him. Interesting to note that in Judaism, the disciples would choose their own teacher. If you wanted to become a disciple of someone and you were a Jew, you would choose your rabbi. But with Jesus, he did the choosing. He chose his followers. That's the way it is with God. 
So let's take a look at verse 18 of Matthew chapter 4. Verse 18 starts like this. Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, one day Jesus is walking on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he sees two brothers, Simon and Andrew, and they're casting a net out into the sea because they were fishermen. They were doing what fishermen do. They were looking for fish. But this sets the stage for Jesus' call to follow. Peter, as we know him, the bold, impetuous, take-charge personality, fished the Sea of Galilee with his brother Andrew. The Sea of Galilee is small. It's more like a lake than a sea. That's, in fact, that's what Luke said in his gospel. He called it a lake. It's 680 feet below sea level. It's oval-shaped, 13 miles long, 8 miles wide. And in the days of the Jewish historian Josephus, there were nine cities on its shores, populated cities. Jesus selecting fishermen from among his first followers is very significant because he was choosing people from everyday walk of life. They weren't the poorest of the poor. They weren't the richest of the rich. They were about as close as you could come to a middle class in those days. And Jesus was choosing people from everyday walks of life. But in verse 19, we see Jesus give a command, follow me, and a promise, I will make you fishers of men. Follow literally means this, here, after me. Come after me, he's saying. He is saying, literally, join me. Join me in my work. Jesus basically is saying, come here. Come here. Be my students. Be my disciples. Be my pupils. Learn from me. Disciples in those days were in constant attendance upon their teacher. Follow them everywhere. They were with them. They, they followed them wherever they went. They ate with them. They listened to them. Their lives revolved around their teacher. Students in those days literally would follow their teacher every place that he walked. D.A. Carson observes about this call, this invitation, that it presupposed a physical following during Jesus' ministry. That they would quite literally follow him geographically. What kind of call was this? What kind of call was, was Jesus giving to these, to these fishermen? Was he calling them to salvation? Was he calling them to evangelism? You know, sharing their faith in Christ with others? A lot of preaching on this passage is very emotional and very much centered on going and sharing the gospel with other people. Is that what he was calling them to? This was not a casual invitation. This was a call to discipleship, to a lasting association, to personal attachment to Jesus. Jesus was not inviting them just to hang out with them. He was inviting them to a long-term relationship with himself. I will make you fishers of men is what he said. And there may be a tie-in here to two Old Testament passages. The first is in Jeremiah chapter 16. Now, in Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 16, it is in the context of judgment. It is a, a, a negative uh, tie-in here. 
But what it points to is that the invitation to God's grace is, is also an opportunity for judgment when that invitation is rejected. In, in Jeremiah 16, verse 16, here's what God says. Behold, I am going to send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will fish for them. And afterwards, I will send for many hunters, and they will hunt them from every mountain and every hill and from the clefts of the rock. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. I will first doubly repay their iniquity and their sin. So it's a word of judgment that God gives in terms of sending fishermen. Now the other possible tie-in is in Ezekiel chapter 47. The whole context there is about a river. And that wherever the river goes, things live. Things live where the river goes. And the water is coming from the temple of God. That's the whole idea of Ezekiel 47. And in verse 9, it says this. It will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place, where the river goes, will live. And there will be very many fish, for these waters go there and others become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Now verse 10 says, And it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it, from Engendi to Anglam, there will be a place for the spreading of nets. Okay? Their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea, very many. Now, I think it's probably a mix of these two that is being alluded to here. That God would use them to draw others to himself, but there would be those who would reject the message and therefore receive God's judgment, his due judgment. Now, being a fisher was a common occupation in those days. Nowadays, we say, hey, let's go fishing, and we're talking about going on vacation or taking a day off and going by the riverside or in a stream or in a lake, right, or in the ocean. But in those days, there were many people who had the job, fishermen, the occupation. Fishing was a major industry in Galilee. In Jesus' time, there were about 250 boats that regularly fished the waters of of the Sea of Galilee on a regular basis. There were boats all over the place. Taking out fish, making their living. Now, they fished in several ways in those days. There was the dragnet approach, where you would quite literally drag a net between two boats. And as the net dragged between the two boats, fish would collect in that net. Now, they did use lines and hooks and spears at some point. There were anglers, uh, but it wasn't the most common way of fishing. Night fishing was common on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, They would attract fish by the flames from torches. Sounds like a a fun way to fish. But when we think about fishing, we usually think about bait and, and lures and fish finders and being crafty and creative and, and uh, using new techniques. But that wasn't the, the main way to fish back then. A common way was casting a net. You would cast a net and throw it over your shoulders, and it would spread out in a circle upon the water and land on the water, and there were weights around the edges of the net 
most, uh, most of the time rocks, and it would weight the, the net down and sink to the bottom. There were lines attached to the net that you, they would pull and, and then bring this circular and, and cone-shaped net back up. And whatever was in the net, they would catch. So a very different way of fishing than, than we think of. Uh, many fish from the shoreline. This is where Jesus saw uh, Peter and Andrew using a hand net. That circular net with weights around the edges and lines from the outside edge to this opening in the middle and they would pull it and there would have your fish. Now, it was kind of like a fishing lasso, if you can imagine that, but just with a net. Now, it took skill and placement was crucial. It was very crucial how you threw that net. Now, think about being fishers of men for a moment. Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He's making it clear that he was calling them to something that was more significant than what they were already doing. Okay, you're fishing for fish. But now you'll be fishing for people's souls. They would now be his pupils. He would be their teacher, their leader, their provider. And it wouldn't be a matter of taking fish up out of a lake anymore. It would be a matter of not of them setting the agenda anymore for their lives. It would be a matter of them being used by God to draw people who were, who were lost in sin, who were slaves to sin, and helping them come in living contact with God. Jesus' followers would learn from him, and they would help others come to know him as well. So if you think about it for us, being fishers of men... It's not so much a matter of us coming up with uh, new and creative ways of, of delivering the message. It has much more to do with being faithful to what we are called to do wherever God has placed us. Jesus calling these fishermen to follow him, it, it included this call to a change of character as well as a change of direction in life. It wasn't just that they were going to go out and do something. They were going to become something new. And out of that newness that was an internal newness, their outward behavior would change as well. That's the same way as it is when when someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ. There is an inward change that people see on the outside. And many times, someone will come to faith in Christ and people will say to you, there's something different about you. Now, you talk the same way, you have the same accent, the same voice inflections, but you use different words. You do different things. You don't do what you used to do. What's the difference? What's the change? There is an inward change that happens and people evidenced by the outward actions stemming from the change that God has brought about in your heart. And so then you, you have a change of allegiance, you have a change of, of focus, you want to reach people for Jesus. You want to make an impact for Christ in the world. There's a change of motivation, change of attitude, and it shows. People see a difference. Now, there was a response that was made to Jesus' call. You see it in verse 20. In verse 20, we read this, Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Immediately, they left their nets. The tools of their trade, they left behind. Now, they had already spent time with Jesus, though, at this time. Lest you start thinking that this was one of those 
we're dropping everything and never going back. You need to think about this with me for a few minutes. In John chapter 1, which precedes Matthew chapter 4 chronologically, interesting about the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark and Luke follow a very chronological order. Matthew follows more of a of a situation by situation account. But what you see in John chapter 1 came before Matthew chapter 4. And in verse 35, you get this picture of John the Baptist standing with two of his disciples. And he sees Jesus walking by. And the two disciples hear John say this, Behold the Lamb of God. Jesus is called the Lamb of God in Scripture, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins, pointing back to the, uh, the Passover lamb and the blood that was on the doorpost and they'd be covered by the blood. Well, Jesus' blood being shed would pay for the sins of the world. And so John said, uh, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak. They followed Jesus. And Jesus turned around and said to them, what are you doing? What do you seek? And they said, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? They wanted to be with him. And he said to them, come and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him all that day. For it was about the 10th hour. <clears throat> Started about 10 a.m. in the morning. They stayed all day with Jesus. Now, one of the two that heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. What did he do first? He went and got his brother, Simon, and said, we have found the Messiah. So there's a, 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 a good chance that they had come to faith in Christ, believing in him, before this call in Matthew chapter 4. But Jesus calls them, and this day they follow right away. Immediately. They were starting a whole new way of life. They had been called by God by Jesus to follow. And the call to discipleship meant a separation from the life that they had previously lived. But it didn't necessarily mean that they had to sell everything right then and break away completely from every earthly tie. How so? If you look in Matthew chapter 8, a couple pages on in Matthew, Matthew chapter 8 and verse 14, Peter was married, he had a mother-in-law, and she got really sick. So it says that Jesus came into Peter's home, where she was staying, and he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, the fever left her, and she got up and waited on them. See, Jesus didn't say, hey, Peter, you've got you to leave your family if you're going to follow me. That would be, he would be um, asking him to do an irresponsible thing, right? But Jesus calls them to follow. And even so, there was a cost in their following. There was a cost involved with their response. The cost of following Jesus, the following Jesus calls for following at all costs, at every, nothing in the way of following Jesus. Now, that doesn't contradict what I just said, if you'll stick with me for a moment on this. It, what it means to follow Jesus is that it's going to cost everything you have. It will cost you Everything. Some, some people in the gospel said this to Jesus, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. It is going to cost every resource you have. It is going to cost 
every talent you possess is going to cost every ounce of your energy, every ambition, every motivation. And moving on to verse 21, you see that Jesus calls two other brothers. Two other brothers, James and John. So now you've got two sets of brothers called to follow Jesus. It shows us that Jesus cares about families. Families are important to Jesus. If Jesus was asking them to leave their families, he wouldn't have called two sets of brothers. Because if he would have said, and you've got to leave your families, he'd only have two disciples at that point. <laughs> he was calling these four men to follow him. They were brothers, and they were becoming brothers in Christ. Brothers in Christ. But in verse 22, you see the second response of this second pair. Immediately they left their nets, their, excuse me, their boat and their father and followed Jesus. Now how quickly did they follow? They followed right away. But did they drop everything and desert their family and their business responsibilities? Probably not. Probably not. They didn't irresponsibly leave their dad in a lurch. And by the way, if you looked in Mark 1.20, you would see that they and their father had hired men that were helping them. But here's what it meant for them to answer Jesus' call to follow. It meant that their allegiance to Jesus was now stronger than any earthly attachment. Following Jesus, though, will never mean disobeying Scripture in any way. When Jesus calls you to follow, he's still going to want you to honor your father and your mother. He's still going to want you to provide for your own household. See, they left their work and they spent time with him that day, but they also kept fishing at other times. You see it in Luke chapter 4 and 5, and in other places, you see Peter cleaning his nets and mending his nets. Now, you do see that one place in John 21 where Peter goes back to fishing because he was so uh, distraught over, over denying Jesus three times. And you see him say, I'm just going to go fishing. But you also see Jesus lovingly bring him back and and recommission him for his service. It's safe to assume at some point in time in the future that they left their careers and served him full time. I kind of see what Jesus was calling them to, uh, just like when you go to a wedding and you read about in, in, in Genesis where it says that a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. He's going to cut the umbilical cord of dependence from his parents and then cleave, stick like glue, with his wife, become one. He still honors his parents. He still even takes care of them in their old age. But he doesn't repudiate the relationship. He cuts the cords of allegiance so that now his primary allegiance is with his wife. And so now, as Jesus is calling us to follow, our primary allegiance is to Jesus over all uh, human ties, however strong and however important they are. It's a matter of first allegiance. So they leave their work and they spend time with him. At some point, they keep fishing. And at some point in the future, they leave everything and they serve him full time. We talk about the cost of following Jesus, and it costs us everything. But let's talk about the benefits for a moment. The benefits of following Jesus far outweigh the costs. Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 29, he said this, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother 
or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. There's a cost to following Jesus. Think about James with me for a moment. One of the first disciples and the first martyr out of the twelve. There are several Jameses in the New Testament, but this James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, is easy to spot in Scripture. You can't miss him in Scripture because he's always mentioned with his brother John. He was the first martyr out of the twelve. He was killed by Herod Agrippa I, which would, by the way, in the early church, jumpstart a severe persecution against Christians in the early church. Acts chapter 12, verse, verse 2. There is a cost to following Jesus. It may cost you your reputation. It may cost you your relationships. There are people we know that come to faith in Christ and their family says, we disown you. You're going to follow Jesus, we disown you. It could cost you your job. You come to know Jesus and you, come to, you go to follow him and you, you obey him and you no longer want to cook the books like your boss wants you to, you may lose your job. I've had it happen to friends of mine. You have too. It costs to follow Jesus. It may cost you your life to follow him where he leads. You know, it's funny. We think always in terms of the cost to us. But that's pretty self-centered if you think about it. The cost, when you think about it, was all God's. He sent His Son to die in our place for our sins so that we might receive the adoption as sons, so that we might have peace with God, we who were His enemies, we who were at enmity against Him, and that we might walk in newness of life. The cost was all God's. What a gift. What Jesus was asking was simply this, follow me. Follow me. What does it mean to follow? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, the answer, as it often is, is found right with Jesus' words. Look no further than these words, follow me. Jesus is the object of the following, follow me. He's the focus. See, when you truly follow Jesus, you acknowledge the leader first and foremost. You acknowledge the leader first and foremost. You recognize that it wasn't your idea, but it was his. He called you. He drew you to himself. He initiated contact and gave you the desire to want to follow. And you might find some human way to explain it that you chose to follow Jesus. But when you think about what he actually did and what he actually said, even in John chapter 15, he says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. You recognize, you acknowledge him first and foremost, that he's the leader. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this, that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Acknowledging the leader, you're declaring that you are willing to die to your own ambition. That you're willing to, to follow God's call. And following Jesus assumes that character change. Instead of wanting your way, you desire God's way. 
You want to please your heavenly father. A child wants to please his father. And you want to please your heavenly father. And following Jesus necessitates that availability to him, that, that willingness, that the here am I, Lord, send me attitude. It necessitates this readiness to follow, ready to follow his instructions at a moment's notice. Ready to follow his call, hearing his voice. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. They know me. I know them. They follow me. We see in Revelation 14 that the, those that had been bought by the blood of the Lamb follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Followers follow. You know, as we tell our kids, we say, what do we say? We say, be a leader, not a follower, right? Be a leader, not a follower. And what we mean is, be a leader among your peers. Don't let them lead you in the wrong way. You, you lead them in, in the right way. You, you uh, influence them. Don't let them influence you negatively. And that's all good and well. But in the spiritual realm, you need to be a follower of Jesus before you can lead anybody. Follow me, Jesus says, and I will make you. He's going to do something. He's going to act on your behalf. He, he will work in you and he will work through you for his honor and for his glory. So we must trust him. See, when you're a true follower of Jesus, you trust God's wisdom more than your own. You trust God's wisdom more than your own. You, have, you, don't have, you see, you don't have any wisdom apart from him. You trust him to give you instruction. You trust him to give you direction and to provide opportunities for further growth. See, some people want to follow, but only if they get to help lead. Some people want to follow, but only if they, get, they lead from the back seat. Or from somewhere near the front. And they're always telling the leader what they want him to do. What they need him to do. Some of us treat Jesus that way. It's wrong. He's the leader. We're the followers. Don't say you're a follower of Jesus if you want to hold the remote. See, when you come to faith in Jesus, you are restored in a relationship with God where you reflect his glory. And everything changes. The gospel changes everything. The gospel of the grace of God in Christ. The gospel of God's kindness towards us that we so are so undeserving of in Christ. The gospel of God's grace in Christ fills you with humility and it fills you with hope. It fills you with meekness and it fills you with boldness. The gospel humbles you and affirms you at the very same time. It humbles you because you realize that although you have received forgiveness, you still sin. So it humbles you and affirms you, and you see and you recognize that you are more sinful and flawed than you ever uh, imagined, yet you are more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. That's motivation to trust God in every area of our life. Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. There's a purpose there. There's a mission there. See, when you're, when you're truly following Christ, it means you obey. You do what God says. You obey unflinchingly, without question, without, without a moment's notice, without a, a thought. You surrender to what he wants. 
You go where he leads. You don't resist. You don't negotiate. You simply obey. Don't you love it when your kids do that? No negotiating? (laughs) See, the gospel differs from traditional religions in that religious people operate on this kind of principle. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Some of you live that way. That's not the way God wants you to live. See, the gospel tells us this. I'm accepted in Christ, therefore I obey. I am accepted through Christ, therefore I want to obey. That's the difference between the gospel and and man-made religions. See, if you want to follow Jesus, you've got to be willing to address all barriers to obedience head on. In fact, go with me over to Luke chapter 9. Because in Luke chapter 9, we see three would-be followers of Jesus. Three people that, that seem to want to follow and are, in a sense, volunteering for it. But you also see that all three are, are somewhat disqualified. Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 57. The first wants to follow Jesus without being called. Verse 57, Luke chapter 9. As they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. What a declaration. And Jesus said, you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Here's what Jesus said. The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. See, the first one to follow without being called, but no one can call himself to such a life of suffering. You don't voluntarily enlist to follow Jesus. He drafts you. You show up. Genuine discipleship is a call from God. God initiates, we respond. Now the second person says, Jesus says to to him, follow me. And and he says, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Another barrier. Doesn't sound like a bad one, though, does it? He wants to bury his dad. We don't know if his dad died or if he's about to die or if he's not going to die for 20 years. We don't know. But he wants to wait to follow Jesus until he gets his dad buried in the ground. Now, the third person thought just like the first one, uh, following Christ must be something I do on my own initiative. Because another, in verse 61, another says, I will follow you, Lord, doing well so far but I got a problem now but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home see what was happening was he wanted to put his own stipulations on following Jesus thinks following Christ is something you do on your own initiative it was like a career map that he was making for himself and he was uh, stipulating the terms he was negotiating the terms Hopelessly inconsistent, by the way. He put a barrier between he and Jesus. And Jesus said, if you, don't, if you put your hand to the plow and you look back, you're not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' answer made it clear he was disqualified. He was plutoed. He was gone. Following Jesus isn't something you dictate terms of. You follow on his terms, you don't follow. That's just the way it is. His terms, by the way, are always better than anything we could make up on our own. Our terms will lead to slavery. His terms lead to freedom. There is no half-hearted following. 
You've got to go all in with Jesus. All in. Now, there's an important part to following. It's what I call adjustment, or you can call it realignment, whatever you want. You see where your desires don't match with Jesus, the direction God is leading, and you either adjust your course or you rebel. You make a choice. Jesus said, if you love me, you will do what I say. See, the only trouble with the game follow the leader, there's actually two possible problems with the, with the game follow the leader. First problem is that the leader leads you astray. Second problem is when the followers don't follow. Now, with Jesus as the leader, you have 100% guarantee that he will always lead you in the right way and he will never lead you in, lead you in the wrong way. So our problem comes in when the followers won't follow. As one writer put it, only the obedient believe. Only the obedient believe. See, Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. There's a purpose there. There's a purpose he's angling towards. And we can stand back at that point and wonder at his handiwork. We can watch him be at work. See, if you're truly following Jesus, there's one more thing. You see his hand in everything, everything. The famous British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge said this, every happening, great and small, is a parable by which God speaks to us. A parable by which God speaks to us. Every happening. And God wants us to get the point. When he calls four fishermen to follow him, he wasn't just telling them to go out and tell people about Jesus which is what we often do with very passionate sermons, knocking people over the head, making them feel guilty for not sharing Christ. Jesus wasn't just saying, you go out and you go share, people, go share with me uh, to others. It included that, but it was so much more. So much more. They were being called into fellowship with him. They were being called into close community with Jesus. They were being called into an intimate relationship with the Savior of the world. They would come to know him deeply, and intimately, he would live his life in them and through them. And as they went forward, they would worship him first and foremost. They would care for one another and, and they would share Christ with other people. They'd be used by God to help people be reconciled to God. And God would not only speak to them, but he would speak through them. See, when you follow Jesus you realize that every calling in life is a mission whereby God wants to speak through you. A husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, a student, an employee. Callings, all callings in which God wants to speak to you and through you. You're not left to your own devices to fulfill the responsibilities that go with those callings. When you're living in communion with Jesus, when you are following him, he gives you what you need to do what he calls you to do. And you're on a mission because you've been changed by the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. Everything changes. And gospel-changed people live gospel-changed lives. Jesus-changed people leave, 
live Jesus-saturated lives. So what might those lives look like in the church and in our homes? And I'll end with this. Think about the gospel with me for a moment. The gospel moves you from fear to faith. It removes fear and it removes pride. So that people should get along inside the church with those they could never get along with outside the church. People should get along with with others inside the church that they could never get along with outside of Christ. Because the gospel points us to the God-man, Jesus, who died for his enemies, the gospel creates relationships of service rather than selfishness. And because the gospel calls us to holiness, the people of God live in the loving bonds of mutual accountability and mutual discipline. So what does that mean in our households? What does that mean in our families? That means that the church and the household that follows Jesus affirms the goodness of marriage between a man and a woman, calling them to serve one another. To serve God by serving one another, reflecting his covenant love in lifelong loyalty and teaching his ways to their children. A church and a household that follows Jesus highly affirms the goodness of singleness, either for a time or for a lifetime. The church that follows Jesus engages in radical sharing with one another especially a need right now by virtue of so many struggling financially. In Acts chapter 4, verse 34, we read, there were no needy among them. That promotes a radically generous commitment of time, of money, of resources, of relationships that ought to be a part of a church and a household that is claiming to follow Jesus. And then how about out out in the community? How about out in our neighborhoods? In our cities? The church that follows Jesus surrounds all those who suffer from the effects of sin. Surrounds them with grace. Surrounds them with love. Non-judgmental love. And with compassionate community and family. You want to follow Jesus? Acknowledge Him first. Trust His judgment more than your own. And obey His instructions one step at a time. See, God knows everything that's going to happen in His plan. But all we get is enough for one step at a time. One day at a time. One moment at a time. God gives us just what we can handle. So following Jesus is all about acknowledging Him. It's all about trusting Him, and it is all about obeying Him and seeing His hand at work, both in your life, in your household, and in others He has called. Let's pray together. Lord God, we, we come to You today, and for those of us who, who clearly know Jesus as our Savior and our Lord, and we just say that we want to follow You, Lord, and, and that we, we don't have the strength to follow You apart from You. And Lord, for any amongst us today that don't know you yet, 
that have yet to come to faith in Christ, we pray that you would draw them to yourself, that they would recognize that there is no other answer in life, that you are the only hope. And we pray, Lord, that they would recognize that soon, even today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.